Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. I'd love for you to have that open this morning if you just keep that as we walk through this text, as we begin our series. Before we do, as you know, and we want to be really careful here that we don't preach the front page of the newspapers because nobody really comes to church to hear that. But there are certain things that pop every now and then uh, that we feel as a leadership that we need to address. And I'd like to do one of those just very briefly this morning. But I want to talk. I want to be clear about this. I want to talk to the community of faith that calls itself Christ Church. I'm not talking to anybody not in the room. I just want to talk to us. And I want to be really clear that I, I, I'm not up here to tell you what to think. But I do want to challenge us how to think about what's taking place in our country. And so with that, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you know that people have always pushed for self-reliance. We, from the very beginning, have been banging back against God and a desire to get what we want the way we want it. And this self-reliance is ingrained in the history of mankind, and it is displayed through misplaced loyalties and misplaced expectations. And on Wednesday, we saw this play out in our country, the behavior of people who are not centered on the gospel of Jesus as their source for strength and hope, and they rely on power. The anger, the frustration, the despondency that's on both sides of this argument has showed that we have placed our hope in who has power and who can get done what we want to get done. And all it really does is it shows the inadequacies of broken people. It shows what we really don't control. So as followers of Jesus, how should we look at this? How should we take every thought captive? Uh, We have to lay down our self-reliance and recognize the limitation of every man-made institution, from education all the way up to government. Best efforts are given, and they're valuable, but they're never enough. We can be like the Israelites who clamor for a king, like the other nations had a king, and God said, you have a king, and they said, we want a king like the rest of the world, and they received King Saul, and they became off-centered, and they began to rely on the power of man instead of the power of God. Or, I hope you and I will hold fast to the convictions of faith that we have and live Jesus-centered lives. Yes, my citizenship and yours is as law-abiding citizens of America. There's no doubt about that. But more importantly, we're pilgrims traveling through this world to a better world and a better kingdom, serving our king right now. And we get the privilege of inviting others to walk with us in this. I pray that our convictions will hold us so that God's reign in our life is not taken off-center. And that we live out a real faith in him. It's with my faith and the unshakable sovereignty of God that I awaken every day. And I'd like to call us to a season of prayer. Not a prayer for any particular form or brand or person in leadership. But a prayer for the Spirit's leadership and our full commitment and loyalty to the kingdom of God. May we live out our citizenship here in America with grace, truth, and wisdom. May we love and model mercy even to those who we disagree with. And may we do what our King Jesus asked us to do a long time ago. Let's render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that only belong to God. And if we would do that, what a difference it might make, not only here, but in our communities and our homes and in our world. Let the church be the difference that this country needs right now. I'd ask you to just take a moment for prayer. And upon just a few moments of silence as you pray, I'd like to close.
Father, we need you. We have always needed you. Forgive us for those times we thought we could do it. Forgive us for those times that our self-reliance caused us to reject you. We stand before you in these days with the divided nation, with anger and frustration and people seeking power as a solution. And we pray that we might model by trusting you and walking as pilgrims in this world that we might model a life that's worth living as we walk through this world into the next. Thank you for giving us that opportunity. And I pray that you'll strengthen our resolve to be people of the kingdom of God foremost and how we live with one another and we live for one another. May we be a people that models the sacrificial lives that Jesus modeled for us. Give us strength, clear our minds, and teach us how to take all things captive. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Jonah. We're gonna spend four weeks in Jonah. Now, to be honest with you, this is the first time I've ever stretched it out like this. Normally, I I preach one sermon on Jonah, but why would I make it easy on you? So we're gonna spend four weeks on it. Because as I've grown, I'm learning there's some layers to this. If you ask most people, they'll say, what's the story of Jonah about? It's about Jonah and the whale, about Jonah and the great fish. And the truth of the matter is, it's not about that. It's about Jonah and a great God. And that's what we want to see when we walk through this. There's so many layers to this. It's about a man who runs away from God and about a God who pursues him relentlessly. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to hold on to. Jonah is about a man who runs, but it's also about a God who chases. But the pursuit of God is not always sweet and romantic. Sometimes it's frightening, yet it's always persistent. You see, God will either be rejected or God will be received, but he will not be ignored. And this is what we learn from the story of Jonah. It defines for us sin and grace. Sin in this story is running away from God because his will conflicts with ours. His sovereignty is not what we want. Grace, it's God's effort to intercept rather, our self-destructive behavior. God pursues us, not with vengeance and anger. He pursues us with compassion and love. And I've entitled this, this series, I Am Jonah, because I am. And I think when we're done, you might be too. And I hope you discover that you are because what Jonah needed, we need. And what God provides, we need. You see, each of us has had the desire and has run from God, haven't we? We've hidden ourselves from him. His sovereignty is too much. His will crosses ours. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us angry. So why did Jonah run? There are a lot of reasons that we'll talk about here over the next three or four weeks. But Jonah runs because God's will wasn't his. What God wanted, Jonah didn't want him or anyone else to have. So he bolted. See, one of the things we learn from Jonah's story is that until we admit that we have run or are running, we will never be truly rescued even though we feel safe. You see, the whole safety that our self-reliance provide for us that makes us think I can make it on my own is actually temporary at best and foolish all the way through. What did Adam and Eve do when they crossed the will of God and they didn't like it and they performed their own will? They hid from him. It's the first thing they did is ran away and hid because they believed they could live their lives without him until they tried and realized it was a fool's game. I'd like to break the first chapter down into three simple bite-sized pieces. The first is this, God made a claim on Jonah's faith. You see, 
Jonah professed to be God's, God's prophet, a follower of the God of all the universe. And when we profess faith in God, God will always and has every right to make a claim on us. Read verses one and two. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. That's a strange way to start such an epic story. There's no backstory. There's no Jonah growing up. Was he a good man or a bad man? It just simply says, and God said, Jonah, do this. God makes claims on us. God is telling a preacher to go to the most cruelly powerful city in the known world at that time and tell everyone that they're wrong. They should humble themselves and honor God rather than their own king. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. Jonah doesn't like it. It makes him uncomfortable. It puts him ill at ease. It threatens his life. I mean, what's the best thing that could happen? They laugh at him. What's the worst thing that happens? They kill him. This seems incredibly unreasonable. See, nothing will test our profession of faith like God asking us to do something we don't want to do. Something uncomfortable. Something that stretches us. And this is exactly what God says to Jonah. I want you to do what you don't want to do. Now, God wasn't doing it to be mean, but God's will is God's will and God will see his will through. So God has and will make a claim on your faith. It's his prerogative And I also want you to understand it is his methodology. If you have ever been presented the gospel to think that once you accept the will of God over you and in you, that everything's going to be smooth sailing, you've been lied to. We are constantly being stretched and shaped into the image of Jesus. And it comes sometimes with great discomfort. You see, when God calls us, It's his methodology and prerogative to do so. And he places a claim on us. To Abraham, he says, that child you've waited until you were an old, old, old man to have, offer to him to me as a sacrifice to show that you love me more than him. It's in that moment that we know that Abraham displayed faith. He didn't love it. It made him uncomfortable. It stretched him beyond. He wished it weren't so. But he said to his servants, we will return. You see, he placed his faith in the character of God. Because he says to his servants, I'm going to kill this child, but God said he was to be the one, he will return with me. He has to. When Jonah has the same opportunity to be stretched in his faith, to grow outside of his comfort, he took refuge by denying God's character or putting it off. Because he felt his will was more apt than God's. So when God makes a claim on us, we can either run or we can respond But either way, God is going to pursue us. The second thing I want you to learn in this story, as we heard read to us and you see in your text, is that Jonah makes his own claim. Jonah makes his own. God had made his, and now Jonah makes, and when God makes a claim and you make a different claim, you've just defined yourself as God. Jonah's whole purpose had been to be a prophet. Think about what a prophet does. Receives a word from the Lord and gives a word from the Lord. He doesn't... He doesn't bring his own into it. He doesn't change it or alter it. He simply lives it out. Jonah was called to be a prophet. So everything in his life was oriented toward the will of God through the spoken word. And now he's saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. No longer is my identity the words of God. My identity will be what I want. So he runs away. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, I'm told, it says he ran from the face of the Lord. 
which is quite interesting. He's not just running from like the presence of God, like the physical presence or the immediacy of God. He's actually running away from the relationship with God. Because you know in the Old Testament, all the way back to Aaron's prayer over the people, for God to turn his face toward us is to God to be with us personally, to be our God, not just a God, but our God, that he might turn his face and show us his face. That's a common expression in the Old Testament. So for Jonah to run away from the face of the Lord, he's actually running away from God himself completely. And if you want to understand why he ran and what his claim was, Turn your Bibles to the, you don't, probably don't even have to turn a page, but maybe one at the most, to Jonah chapter four. Look with me at verse two. Jonah explains why he ran. Didn't I say this would happen? That's why I fled toward Tarshish to start with. I knew you might spare the Ninevites. I knew you were a compassionate God and merciful, and that's why I fled. Think about it. How can I serve this God? He's too nice. He's too merciful. He's too forgiving. Who could serve a God like that? Huh? See, Jonah wasn't afraid of failure. Jonah was afraid of success. He was afraid someone he didn't love might be rescued. This is what it comes down to. He ran because he was self-righteous. It's epidemic in our country. Self-righteousness is best depicted by the fact that you believe there are some people worth it and some people not. That you're better than some and others aren't as good as you. This is what self-righteousness is. This is what is being lived out. We see it in our culture. It's, di- it's divisive in churches and in families and in politics and in the world. It's everyone has got like, they're worth it and they're not. We have to be very, very careful, especially as people of faith. It is the plague of our society. The more people we feel better than, the better we feel about ourselves. And it's a poison. Jonah's particular form of self-righteousness was that those people didn't deserve to be saved. Those people living in Nineveh, those people living in Assyria, this great nation that we now call Iraq, they don't deserve it. But it's funny, if I say Assyria and Nineveh and Babylon in an American church, people don't think much. When I say Iraq, people are like, whoa, what? And because, you know, there's certain groups that just don't deserve the gospel because they, the way they've acted. But I think, can we all admit, if we focus our minds on how to think about this, that there is no one innocent, there is no one worthy, There is no one truly good. You see, our King Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the ones with power, the accomplished, the right, or the successful. The ones that know they need him. The ones that are open to the gospel message. The ones who don't feel better than others. We do it in so many areas of our lives, even churches. And I want to be honest, because you might think I'm, I'm just going political. I'm actually not talking about it. I'm talking about the political nature of churches. They're actually believers who love the same God and love the same Jesus who think their brand of Christianity is better than others and those people who are foolish enough to believe that aren't worth it. We need to stop. The reason you and I are all believers, I pray, is because Jesus pursued us and was good to us when we didn't deserve it. Because I know for a fact there's nobody on this stage right now and no one sitting in front of me who deserved what Jesus gave us. And self-righteousness is a plague. So we feel better than someone, and that's what Jonah does. He's not willing to preach grace because he doesn't want them to have it. He's happy he has it, but they shouldn't have it. This really isn't about not going to preach. It's actually about defying the will of God because it crosses Jonah's pride. His pride was his salvation. Every one of us has run away from God. 
Every one of us has, has made a claim. We're all deep down inside. We have a book. We have a list. We have curated this. I, I'm doing better than I used to do. We have a list of all the things we've tried to do. It's self-righteousness. And, and when, when our list of bad things and dark things and secret things were longer than our list, we're broken by that. And we don't know how to, to balance it out or overcome it. And so we turn to the Lord and then all of a sudden we turn to the Lord and we start to, to list all the things we do and give and years we've served and what we've done. And when that list gets bigger than the other list, we start feeling like, well, at least I'm better than those people who did nothing. It's a plague and it's harmful and it's foolish. You see, when self-righteousness is displayed, one of two things happen. We, we either feel better than others because we compare ourselves to others and we find someone worse than us, or we think everybody's better than us and we develop self-hatred because we can't even meet the standard we've set for ourselves. And here's the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ corrects both those positions. The gospel says to the ones who feel they're better, you're not good. You're, all your righteousness is filthy rags. And to those who feel like God can't love them because of all they've done and all the brokenness and all the pain they've had in their life, the gospel says, no, I came for you because blessed are those who are poor and broken and need me. The gospel is the answer. The gospel, the gospel is the solution to our pride because it humbles us in the greatest ways and strengthens us in the greatest ways. God saves us because he wants to and we allow him to. And God saves us in spite of our success and God saves us in spite of our failure. Until you found joy in God's grace, until we really process the gospel well, you're still in a false sense of self-righteous control. Oh, I did what he asked me to do. Now he owes you or we owe him. Dr. Timothy Keller in his commentary, actually his book on the story of Jonah says, if you wanna flee from God, there will always be a ship to take you someplace. It's a story of a man running from God and a God pursuing him with great passion. So God placed a claim on Jonah and their wills crossed. And so Jonah placed a claim on himself and said, I'm my own man. I get to live my life the way I want to live it. Third point I want to make this morning is God pursues him mercifully. God doesn't stop. And here's the good news. God is not coming like a, a parent who's about to smack or smite. God's compassion sends him after Jonah. And how does God do that? How does God show his compassion and mercy? Oh, he sends a storm. Wait. So God's mercy is mean. God's mercy is volatile. It may appear that way. Remember I told you, the compassionate pursuit of God is not always romantic and soft and sweet. Sometimes he runs into the room and he whisks you away from circumstances that are dangerous and poisonous that you don't understand or trust. But I want you to know that every act of disobedience brings a storm. It's built into the system, church. The economy of God is as you cannot reject him and rebel against him and not suffer for it. But the suffering isn't always God caused it. It's often just built into the system. It's the poison of sin. It's the poison of rebellion. And it brings into our lives storms, storms that are coming when we disobey. And you may say, well, God could stop them. He could, or he could make them worse. But he lets the storms come in. And the good news of the gospel is that he'll sit in the storm with us. He always has. He will be with Daniel in the lion's den. And he will sit with us in the storms. So I want to be clear. These storms are not because God created them. They're because we created them in our rebellion. And so a storm comes. 
And the, the part I want you to understand is you may say, well, the storm's coming, I'm getting nervous. No, look, the storm was such that it shook the boat, it shook the seas, it was a great storm. Experienced fishermen began to panic and where was Jonah? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. I've read that somewhere else, have you? In your New Testament about Jesus sleeping in the bottom of the boat in a storm, they wake him up and they're like, dude, don't you care? And he's like, ah, be still. And then he lectures them. I don't know what the connection is. There's something though. That'll be another sermon when I figure it out. But in the midst of it, he's awakened. And you see, not every storm arrives immediately. And sometimes we sleep through the storms. I mean, think about it. Sexual immorality feels good, maybe even comforting, and then it masters you and you're like, whoa, storm. The first rush of an intoxicant feels wonderful, but then you wake up and storm. Sitting around and harboring resentful thoughts about those people who deserve your love and care and those who certainly don't. They deserve your revenge and getting even and striking out. Might feel good for a moment and then a storm. Storm or sin always has a storm cloud connected to it. But in the midst of the storm, God provides mercy. Yes, God allowed the storm. He brought the storm, but he did it to gather the attention of Jonah. And he was with Jonah every step of his discomfort. He surrenders to God. He was trying to flee the presence of God, but God would not allow it. So God's presence joined with him and God gathers his attention. And, and we think, what kind of good God is that? There's an old fairy tale that goes like this. There was a wicked witch in the middle of the forest who had a cabin. And in that cabin, she had a, this wonderful bed she had created. And when a stranger would come through the forest and needed a place to stay, she was sweet and kind and she would invite them in and she would feed them and she would invite them to sleep in her bed. It was the most comfortable bed you can imagine, but it was bewitched. If you fell asleep in that bed and you stayed asleep until the sun came up, you would be turned into stone, but not just turned into a stone statue. You would be alive within the stone statue with no chance of escape for eternity. Your heart and soul stayed trapped. And then you were put out into her garden with the other statues where you lived for eternity. A young man came one time passing through and it was growing dark and he asked the lady if he could stay in her cabin and she invited him in and invited him to have a wonderful meal and she cooked and she had a, a, a young girl she had trapped and was using as her servant girl and the servant girl felt compassion and love for the traveler. He was a handsome young man and he was kind and her heart went out to him. Before he goes to bed, she throws thorns and sticks and stones under the mattress. When he gets into bed, he can't get comfortable. So his night, he's not restful. He doesn't sleep for very long and he wakes in the middle of the night and his back is sore and he's irritated and he's frustrated and angry and the sun hasn't come up yet and he decides he's got a long way to go. He's just gonna get up in the dark and begin because he's not getting any rest. But he's really irritable. I know how some of you, you know, wake up that way. And as he's going out the door, he says to the servant girl, he says, what kind of place is this? And she responds with tears in her eyes. The misery you experienced was my gift. You can't compare the loss of comfort to the misery your comfort would have brought you. Don't you th see those were rocks and sticks and stones of love I placed under you. This is exactly why God brings storms. To keep us from falling into a comfort that lulls us to sleep and wrecks our faith and wrecks our future. They awaken Jonah from his sleep and they ask him, where are you from and what are you doing here and how, how are you sleeping? They realize something strange here. And he said, I'm a Hebrew. And my God is the God over everything, land and sea. 
When they say that, they're like, it's you. He's after you. And when Jonah realizes what's going on, Jonah goes, he's after me. And Jonah says, throw me overboard, verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And they try not to do that. They try to row back to shore. These people care about him more than he cares about them. But I want you to notice something. Jonah gets saved before he gets wet. I want you to hold on to that for the next three weeks. God's salvation began on Jonah before he was ever thrown into the water. Because then Jonah looks at them and he says, throw me in. He's willing to sacrifice himself because he's due the judgment of God so that those who aren't might be spared. Did he expect to live? I don't think so. Did he deserve to live? No. So when Jonah gets thrown overboard and his suggestion to be thrown overboard, he was giving himself up. He was ending his life. Verse 15, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared. I love this. Now, just these are those little fun things that make me happy and make my tail wag all week long. Think through it with me. Storm blows up that's bigger than any storm they knew how to handle and they're scared. It continues no matter what they do. They're praying to their gods and they're offering sacrifices. Nothing changed. They become more scared. Then they take, they find out it's Jonah. They throw Jonah overboard. The water instantly calms and the storm stops and they became more afraid. It's kind of funny, isn't it? They thought if we end the storm, we'll be safer. And the storm ends and they're like, what? And they're frightened. Reminds me of that story of Jesus in the boat, right? He calmed the storms and they're like, who is he? And in this moment, they're asking that same question. His submission and sacrifice was accepted. God had gotten his attention. He had surrendered. And under the waves, there was a rescue. Do you ever have a moment with your children where you have to bring pain to them to save them? Oh, it might be something small like a splinter that they've hidden in their finger for a couple of days because they know dad's going to get the knife out, right? And they compassionately look at my wife, the compassionate one. They're like, save me from him. You know, I've got all my equipment, you know, and I'm going to just dig that puppy out and save their life because I'm a hero. They don't see it that way, do they? You ever had to hold your child down? I have. Hold your child down when they get stitches? They're hurt. They're bleeding. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. And then I pin them down on a table and hold their arm while they bring the needle the size of their body and jam it in the open wound. And then they begin to sew them up or put staples in them. And you're like, you're going to be okay. And they're like, I think I'd rather die. It's called compassionate discomfort. Doctors and dentists have to do things that hurt us and parents have to do things that hurt us so they could what? Save us. It's called compassionate discomfort and that's what grace is. Sin is when our will crosses God and we choose our sovereignty over his. And grace is when God brings compassionate discomfort, not romantic, sweet but necessary, effective. The grace of God is pursuing and intercepting self-destructive behavior. His grace is fierce and it's determined and it's on point. What does this have to do with us? I'm Jonah, are you? Because I run away from God when I didn't like what he wanted me to do and when I felt like I was being led in an area and I didn't think I want, not only did I think it wouldn't work, I didn't want it to work. I didn't want to obey. I wanted my way. Why can't God do it my way? If he did it my way, I'd always be in agreement. But what do you do? I ran. I rebelled. I put other people at risk. And he rescued me. Sometimes his rescue doesn't seem like rescue because you see, it says he was thrown into the sea and swallowed by a big fish. I'll see you next week. Unsatisfying? Think about Jonah. 
His rescue is what? A great fish. Here's what I want you to know. You know how this connects to the gospel? Because one greater than Jonah came and he was flung into the sea of God's wrath for us. He volunteered because God's pursuit of us creates storms where we need to see the one who calmed the storm. We need to see the one who gave himself up for us. See, Jesus was challenged by a group of teachers who didn't want to believe in him because his will crossed theirs. And they said, give us another sign, put on another show, make us, give us one more reason to believe in you. And Jesus responded with this, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the son of man be to this generation. He said, for three days, I'll be in the belly of the whale, the fish, the tomb. Then he said, one greater than Jonah is here. If we look to what he did, we find our hope. We find our reason to stay. For those of you who don't have Jesus as the center of your existence, if God's will confronts yours way too often so that you run, return. This is what it means. He's pursuing you so you'll return. He's not pursuing you so he can catch you and destroy you. He's pursuing you to invite you in to a life-saving relationship where you'll find out his will is your blessing, not your curse. And for those of us who have professed that Jesus is our center and our solution. I want you to pay attention over the next three weeks because Jonah is the typical person. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out, he's in, he's out, he's in, he's out, and God never stops pursuing him for life. This is the God we serve. Maybe you want someone to pray with you this week. Maybe you need to begin a conversation about how do I center myself on Jesus? How do I think about these things in a way that puts me in the center of God's will? Out in the foyer, there are three tables. It's called a prayer center. You don't even have to come be prayed for. We have staff and some counselors and some of our church leaders. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk of discipleship, this is why this church exists. It doesn't exist for Sunday mornings. It exists for discipleship. If we can help you walk or you can help us walk, come see us anytime, anywhere. This is why the community of faith exists. I am Jonah. Are you? Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.